forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate. And I'm telling you all to go watch Jury Duty because it is so funny. Hi, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and voices continuing to drop. <laughs> um, okay, so that this is like the show that's gonna like launch Freebie, huh? I think so. So Freebie is of like an advertising-supported yeah. Amazon channel. Sure. You can just go on Amazon and watch it. It's one of the funniest things I've seen in years. The show. Have you seen it yet? No, I haven't. I know how Whitney is on it. Yeah, it's I mean, it's so deeply funny because the premise is brilliant. It's like a mockumentary about like a jury duty on like a, like a civil case. Yeah. But then one guy thinks it's real. OK, I get stressed out by stuff like that. Yeah, but like nothing bad happens to him. It's more just like him watching other people be unusual. Yeah. And he is like. The nicest guy. Like, you've, I've never seen an edit that makes you like somebody more than you like this guy. Oh, really? Okay. Like, he's never the butt of the joke. It's like, he's just like, he's like the voyeur who's like, wow, like, people are strange. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's so funny. It's so well done. And the guy is like, I'm obsessed with him. And James Marsden is in the show playing himself. And there's just this ongoing bit that, like, nobody knows who he is. Even That's amazing. He's so famous to me, but I found out John didn't know who he was. Oh, really? I think he's so famous. He's incredibly famous. But well, people, I guess people really don't know him. So like the guy didn't know him. Really? The guy like, it's so funny. The guy was like, what are you from? And like, he was like, well, Sonic was like my most recent movie. And the guy goes, I heard that was terrible. <laughs> okay. But I have done that. I have said, so, like, someone said they worked on, so, like, I said something mean about something and then the person said they worked on but it. That's different. You didn't know they worked on it. I didn't know they worked on it. To know they worked on it. To go, that, I heard that was terrible. Oh, it's my such God. A, but he's not like that. He's just, like, a very nice guy. And it's, I mean, it's just so funny. And all the characters are so well done. The acting is amazing. I, I was watching it and I was like, what do I do with this information? Like, I love this show so much. I want them to make more stuff like this. How do I do that? And I was like, yeah. well, I guess I'm, Talk about all the podcasts. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, it's getting a lot. Of, people seem to really like it, which is crazy when something cuts through the noise. You know oh, totally. I mean? And especially like, on a new platform. Yeah, it's really wild. It's like you you think like, oh, who wants this? This is not going to become a thing. And then uh, and then there'll be like one show that does super well. And you're like, oh, OK, this yeah. is a thing now. It shows that like if if it's good and, and at least some people with the TikTok watch it. Yeah. <laughs> it can break through. Yeah. It's funny. I think I think Whitney worked with James Marsden on another thing, on like a 1920s type of show, I remember. So I wonder if like they they like kept in touch or something because I was like, I think she's worked with him before. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's not his show. He's just one of the, I mean, I think he's probably an EP, but it's like, yeah. it's created by people who worked on The Office. I also think people like, I like when famous people play idiot versions of themselves. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite things. Like, yeah. like when Joey from Friends was in ep in episodes as himself, as as Matt LeBlanc, and he's yeah. such an asshole. Yeah. And like in the, an ongoing part of the show was that everyone from Friends hates him. Yes. It was like, oh, chef's kiss. Yes. They had like the one where they had um Daniel. There's like one where Daniel Radcliffe is like super horny. 
like, and it was like at the height of Harry Potter and he's like playing himself as like this horn dog. I always find it very funny. It's yeah. And it also shows that the people don't take themselves too seriously. Or their managers were like, do this because you're taking people think you take yourself too seriously. <laughs> That's true. You know what I mean? Well, this is just between us a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty about the new hit show oh Jerry Duty. We are literally not paid for this. <laughs> we are literally not paid to promote this at all. Who cares? I just want it out in the world. It brings me so much joy. Yeah, you just love it. I love it. It makes me so happy. Oh, well, when you, this is like, reminds me of when you found Nathan Fielder. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That changed my life. Oh my God. <laughs> you like when it's like regular people or something. Only if it's not mean. I actually had it and I'm going to, people are going to come for me on this. I had issues with the rehearsal. Yeah. You said because you thought it was mean. And, and like they didn't know that they were in and, and Nathan for you all the business owners knew that they were signing up to be a part of the show on the rehearsal there's people on it who are like don't even realize they're being filmed and that feels very different to me yeah yeah I'll agree with that anyway we've got a wonderful episode for everybody today oh my god we had such a good interview with Steve Hall all about small businesses and like it's just like the people of color entrepreneur fund and I mean it's just really really insightful and smart interview and later we'll be talking about anti-Semitism, which was a suggestion from a listener. And so it's a heavy topic, but hopefully an important one to, to discuss. Yeah, I think so. I think it unfortunately ongoing. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Shelly, China. I maintained intense eye contact with Melissa through that whole song, and she's very unsettled. Yeah, she didn't like that at all. <laughs> didn't like it at all. So Shelly writes, Dear Gabe and Allison, Firstly, thank you so much for your show. It's grown with me through so many life experiences, including coming out of my first queer relationship, my first queer heartbreak, and an international move. And it's always a safe place for me. I appreciate the super empathetic and honest way you both talk about your experiences and give advice. And I think I'm a better person for listening to JBU. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, <laughs> oh my God Shelly. Wow. I've been in therapy for a while now, and my therapist recently brought up that I might have some avoidant attachment. I was quite surprised at first because I tend to be a big caregiver in relationships, and that doesn't fit with my idea of what avoidant attachment looks like. After thinking about it, though, it makes a lot of sense to me. I'm extremely independent, and I've struggled in the past to be vulnerable with friends. I also struggle with communicating my feelings without feeling like I'm going to upset the other person. So I tend to default to trying to self-regulate and deal with difficult emotions and solitude. I think it was surprising because I didn't think about the fact that even avoidant attachment exists on a spectrum. So it's not like having some avoidant attachment style tendencies makes someone a completely cold and self-centered narcissist. I really want to heal and become someone who is capable of secure attachment. I've had a really painful breakup recently with someone I love very much and thought I could be with long term. And I'm scared that I will never have a healthy relationship. In my heart, I really want a best friend partner human to do life with me and have a mutually beneficial, loving and healthy relationship. I wanted to ask if either of you have any experience with non-secure attachment styles and working towards healing from them. And also any general thoughts and advice you would have would be awesome. I would love to hear some perspectives about this. Thanks for taking the time to read this, Allison. <laughs> and thanks, Gabe, for all the queer shit you've helped me through just by existing and being vocal about your experience. From Shelly. It's a double international question. I'm South African, but I live in China, where I'm emailing you from. 
Whoa, cool. Double, double trouble. Cool. I think you have different attachment styles sometimes with different people. Yeah, so I think something that like has maybe been misrepresented about attachment styles is this idea that they're fixed and mm-hmm. that you are this way and then you're this way with everybody. Mm-hmm. But the reality is like your attachment styles can absolutely change and they also can be exacerbated by certain people. It can be different relationship to relationship. And that's kind of exciting though because it means that like it can change. Mm-hmm. Like I used to have anxious attachment for sure and I now have secure attachment and it's way better. Yeah, say more about that. Well, I used to just like cling to my partners and need a lot of reassurance and not feel like securely attached to them and that like I thought they would leave at any moment, which ironically they tended to. But, you know, <laughs> like I I was always like, it was never enough. And so I was like, it, you know, a lot of times people with anxious attachments are called the pursuer mm. and the person with avoidant attachment is called the withdrawer. Mm-hmm. And it's like a kind of classic dynamic that a lot of couples find themselves in with one person continuously pursuing and the other withdrawing more and more. And so I, for me, I was able to heal my attachment style through increasing my own self-esteem mm-hmm. and my own self-worth mm-hmm. and and just sorting to not ch- kind of changing the schema I saw the world through where like once I decided that I was lovable, then I would see my partner's actions through that lens instead of having a schema that I'm unlovable or un- or difficult to love. And then it was always seen through that lens. And mm-hmm. so, you know, then someone taking an hour to call you back was suddenly proof that you were a piece of shit and you don't matter. Mm-hmm. Whereas like if you have an opinion of yourself that you do matter, someone not taking taking an hour to call you back isn't having anything to do with you. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like a very different way to like approach life and, and relationships. Mm-hmm. But avoidant attachment is a, is a different beast, I would argue. And also I will say like I was able to heal my attachment issues. I was able to, to, to switch to secure attachment because I also grew up with stable caregivers. Mm -hmm. So I think that the fact that I was anxious at all in the first place had more to do with my mental health than my, my early experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think that maybe my transition is going to be easier than someone who grew up with um, less stable caregivers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it is a challenging thing and it's a lot of, of living in the discomfort, right? So if you're avoidantly attached, you're going to feel and not everyone experiences avoidant attachment for different reasons, but like, let's say a classic is like kind of that, this idea that like you cannot exist as an independent person while also being in a close relationship with somebody. Mm. So the fear is if I, if I engage in full intimacy, then I'm going to lose my sense of self. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes really scary to engage in intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. Or the another version is like, if I fully engage then this person, I'm giving this person power. the ability to hurt me. Yeah, and power. that's really scary. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, it's sort of like almost exposure therapy of forcing yourself to be truly intimate and vulnerable so that over time with this person, you can see, oh, there's not bad repercussions from that. Yeah. It's not that like immediately you will feel comfortable doing those things. It's just that with time and 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 through connection, you can see, oh, I'm able to get to a deeper level of connection and partnership by going through this initial discomfort and not withdrawing, even though I want to withdraw and not shutting down, even though I want to shut down. 
And then it's through that learned experience that your attachment style can kind of start to shift because you can say like, oh, it's actually, I actually like it way better when I let my guard down and when I don't withdraw. And so you start to have positive experiences of what it means to have a secure attachment. And then slowly with time, it it maybe will even become your default. How do you, how much do you think that has to do with finding someone who your attachment styles match? Like, I think a lot of the people when you were, when you were saying, oh, and they did leave, it's like, well, yeah, because you're, you had completely different like styles anyway. Like you were choosing people who were not similar to John, let's say. Well, I don't know if that's necessarily so true about my ex-fiance. Yeah. John's more giving, I think, or more, more like, I don't know. No, I mean, my relationship with my ex until the last few months was, was both very secure. We were, Mm. you know, I I don't, it's not like I look back at like the whole relationship was a nightmare. It was a wonderful relationship Mm -hmm. until a certain point. But I think, I think, unfortunately, it's always going to be easiest to be in a relationship with somebody who has a secure attachment. (laughs) Like, you know, like if we could all just date people with secure attachments, that'd be wonderful. But the reality is not everybody has that. And so obviously there are ways that you could, you know, be exacerbating each other's attachment styles. But there's also the ability to heal. And I think so much about what makes relationships work is a willingness to change. Mm -hmm. And so if you meet somebody and you're avoidantly attached and they're anxiously attached, and then you're both like, well, this is what it's going to be. That's really tough, right? Mm -hmm. But if you meet somebody and they're anxiously attached and you're avoidantly attached and you're both like, we know this about ourselves. We know that like, if I, you know, like the anxious attachment person could say, I'm not going to check in with you at work because mm-hmm. even though I really want to and I feel anxious if I don't hear from you during the work day, I understand that when I do that, you start to feel like you can't do your work and mm-hmm. you start to feel stifled and suffocated mm-hmm. and, and it becomes this negative cycle. And so being able to say like, okay, the anxious attachment person isn't going to contact you doing work, but the avoidant attachment person is going to call you on the way home from work the yes. moment they get off. Yeah. Right. Like it's this like ability to compromise and to understand that some of this stuff has nothing to do with the actual person they're in relationship with. Mm-hmm. It's more just like a pattern or a history that's coming up. And so I think what's most important is finding someone if they're not already securely attached, who is actively wanting to work towards that. Yeah. I think I have a lot of avoidant attachment, mostly because I'm like, I don't want to get hurt. Mm -hmm. So I am trying to work on on that, on being like not as avoidant or being not as like the person who if someone because like I have anxious like a, a thoughts or abilities, but like, let's say I want I, someone doesn't call me back for whatever, or like disappears or something. I I'll be like, okay, well, I never liked you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's fine. I didn't like you anyway. So all of, so anyway, it's over. And I think that's avoidant, right? Is that I'm just like, I'm, I'm not, I don't like get clingy. I become like, okay, well it was yeah. a good run, but like literally all that happened was that they did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I mean, there are definitely things that, that have happened that I think would exacerbate that in a lot of my relationships. But I also am actively working on not going to extremes and not being like, okay, this happened. So, well, it's over. Like, you know, or like, it's fine because I didn't even really like them anyway. And like, we shouldn't have been together. And it's, you know what I mean? Like I do 
in in I'm talking about in situations where that's not warranted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's really like how do you view a relationship? Is it a place of safety for you? Or is it a place of fear? You know, the yeah. fear either being that like you're going to be left or the fear being that you're going to lose yourself or the fear, yeah. you know, that your life is going to change in a way you don't want it to. And so getting to a place where like your relationship is a secure base for you to then be able to go out and explore the world and be your own person. And that's that idea of, you know, being interdependent with another person and being able to rely on somebody without being codependent on them. Yeah, I'm working on codependency a lot. I'm really, I'm trying very hard not to be codependent. It's very easy to slip back into it. And I'm trying like immensely to to not. And I think I still slip up, you know, but. Well, what, because like, how do you define that? For Like, what is it? How does that show up for you? Just wanting to be involved in everything that the, like just wanting to be around the person all the time. And like both both of us kind of just becoming like, okay, we're together all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that builds resentment. And I also think that that creates, for me at least, a tension of just sort of being like, well, now there's pressure to make, you know, to make it like every time that we hang out interesting and exciting or something. And then I, I also get, I think, overwhelmed. So I'm like, wow, we've been together for so many days. And I'm like very, I I don't know. Like, then I start to go, well, Maybe they don't even like me, which is kind of, I don't know. My my thought process kind of ping pongs all over the place. But like, really, it is just like me being like, I have to have my own friends. I have to spend time with my own friends. I have to make sure because in past relationships, it got very enmeshed. I have to make sure that I'm not doing every hobby or activity that the other person does to to make plans to spend time apart to, you know, very much like having all these things, all these hobbies, like I'm going to yoga, I'm going to pole, I'm going to kickball, like all these things that don't have to do with join immediately joining my partner's friend group. And I mean, and I'm so hyper aware of it that I almost like, like with, I have to think of like, what is stuff that you would normally do as a couple versus what is me needing to be like, well, no, no, I shouldn't be a part of that because it's just your friends. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it can be hard to overcorrect, right? Or to not, it can be hard to not overcorrect. Yeah. But I mean, so much of it is about intention. And I think the thing that's exciting about, you know, Shelly's predicament is that it's something that Shelly can actively work on. Right. And so the, the times to work on it are those moments where you feel like, I want to leave this situation. Mm-hmm. I'm having a tough conversation with my partner and I want to get the hell out of here. Oh my God. And instead, it's being able to say, well, that's what I would do in the past. But what I know this time I try staying. It's so hard. My instinct is to leave 99.9% of the time. My instinct is to get in my car and go away. And like, my instinct is I want out of it. I want, I don't care about you anyway. And I want to be gone. Like that's, it is so hard to now in this relationship do the thing that is going to be better, but is actively against everything my body wants to do. And it's really hard and nice. And like my ex and I fought, like fought, fought, fought. The person I'm dating now, we don't like fight. We just have kind of discussions. And I'm like, so everything in me is like, I want out. I want to get out of here. And then like the last one we had, he was like, I'm really happy that you listened to me. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, you just, you just, that's the better outcome. You just have to. And then you have to say that you care, even though you just want to like 
oh my God, I'm crying. Okay, stop. Like, even though you just want to like, I'm like, I want, I want to, I want out of this. I don't want to seem like I care. I don't want to seem like, I don't want to seem like I could get hurt. I don't want to seem, I don't want to say what's bothering me because I want to be a person that nothing bothers me. And like, I'm cool and nothing bothers me. And like, I don't even have any feelings about anything ever. And then it's like putting, being in a situation where you do have feelings and then needing to like explain them and talk about them. And like, it's just like, for some reason, so fucking painful for me and that I'm sure it's really normal for other people. Not really. I mean, nobody really likes tough conversations. It's not, but is it so, but I feel like it's really tough for me more than other, like, I feel like other people, yes, have this, but I think there are some people who are just like, and then I just like talk about my feelings and I say that I'm sad or whatever. And I'm just like, oh my God, it's horrible. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, definitely some people are predisposed to hate it more and have a bigger, you know, reaction to it. But I think, I think it's like a muscle. And I think that like each time you do it to be able to say like, I'm training. That's what he and I say. We're both like, the more that there's a positive outcome to these types of conversations, the more we will expect a positive outcome. And then immediately afterwards, I want to be like, and I'm so cool. And then none of that even bothered me at all. I don't even know why we had that conversation because I was fine. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's maybe some work to be done around what you define as cool. I know. Because if you start to see being emotionally open and vulnerable as cool, then it won't feel so bad to do that. I want to vomit right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, hopefully that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Steve Hall. So stay tuned. back to just between us it's time for the juiciest most scandalous most controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions this week on the show we have steve hall the national director of lisc's entrepreneurs of color fund initiative and vice president of small business and economic development lending he coordinates the entrepreneurs of colors fund work with small and mid-sized businesses government agencies and community development organizers He directs efforts that help fund channel capital to small business owners. Hello. How y'all doing? Hello. We're good. You know, I want to start off with a kind of a broad question, which is what what counts as a small business? (laughs) Oh, man. Now, see, now you got me excited. I didn't didn't know I was going to get a good question to start. So it's um, what's interesting for me is like the SBA has what they call a size standard definition, and they define all small businesses differently. So for me, Specifically, is $25 million less of revenue, one or more employees, and a business, for the most part, that's not owned by another entity. So not by a mm. large global affiliate or a corporation who's just kind of spending it off to take advantage of tax credits or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that's going to be a lot of probably this conversation is how these bigger corporations take so much advantage of loopholes where then... Like are small businesses kind of set up to fail in that way where they don't they can't use all these advantages and then they're struggling with overhead. And, you know, how do how do they even stay afloat? <laughs> you know, you, you, you just touched on a great a great question. What's different from a small business from a large corporate business is small businesses don't know about all the incentives that are out there. Right. So 
it's inherent on their lenders to provide them a framework for what's possible. Large corporations, they have like research teams that figure out everything. Like you could say you're a small business, you can create an affiliate and you get all these tax credits. And they said, let's do it. <laughs> but it's it's inherent for organizations like Less to, you know, share the information with small businesses. So they too can take advantage of those incentives, especially ones from diverse backgrounds and diverse communities. Yeah. What is the LISC? Like, what do they do? Oh man, we do some of everything. This is this is like the best and the worst job I ever had, right? What does it stand for? Local Initiative Support Corporation. So when I say it's the best, like our intention is to invest in low to moderate income communities, housing, small business, safety, financial literacy. Like we do a little bit of everything, right? The worst job is we do a little bit of everything. So you have to kind of be versed on everything <laughs> when you go to a community. So it's it's important when we're doing a, you know, let's say a $20 million affordable housing development. And then are we going to make sure that they have jobs, right? And, you know, that's the small business division. And then uh, we have a sports and rec division. Are we going to have play spaces for the children who are going to live in affordable housing, right? And is it also going to be secure? And then are the people in this affordable rental housing going to learn one day how to buy the other assets in the community? So it's it's a great opportunity, but it really stretches our workforce then because we always have to be we have to be on our toes because we offer so much value. We have to make sure that we reflect the value that we offer. And so like we touched on it a little bit already, but like how do you build a successful small business and what are some sort of mistakes that, you know, young business owners make? Oh man, that's a great question. So when I when I visit businesses across the country, there are two big challenges I see that that people forget. Small business decisions are local. Like you have to know your community. You can't you can't pretend this community likes quiches and they really like scrambled eggs. Like there's just there's just a difference, right? And then the the second biggest thing is you have to you have to control your ecosystem. It's better to be a small business real estate owner. It's better to have a good relationship with a bank. You know, it's better not to take a lot of that to chance. In some of the markets we're in, we see a lot of gentrification, um, a lot of displacement of small businesses because as things start to get, you know, well for them, large corporates come in. They like if you have a great restaurant and they say, "Oh man, this guy's doing well. I could just open up a Denny's right across the street and have." the same success, if not greater, because of the brand. So small businesses really have to understand the environment they're in and then take advantage of those two things. What, what do you mean? Like someone has an, a big a restaurant that's doing well and then a corporation looks for that and puts something else in? Like that That literally happens? That literally happens. So so let's think of it like this. It's um, what's interesting, like large corporations have real estate divisions and their real estate divisions, they do research on where the highest return, most unpenetrated markets for my brand. And this is the same for banking. It's the same for fast food. It's the same for even logistics. I mean, like all of these companies they identify, like let's say I'm a logistics company and I'm global. And I realize like there's some pocket in LA where some independent is killing it, right? Well, they're, they're doing research to identify who is that independent. Why are they doing so well? And they find out they don't have any competitors. So what does a large corporate do? They they pop a location right in that community to try to carve out that business from that entrepreneur. And that entrepreneur is building wealth, right? Not only for himself, but for their employees, 
they have sustainable jobs and those jobs, you know, become generational. Sometimes they teach their kids like, hey, man, you know, I work, I've been working so and so for 30 years and he's a good employer. Why don't you come work for him? You know, so when you miss out on those opportunities, you start having large corporates that are high turnover. There's no dependability or infrastructure on uh, the work life balance that I think small businesses bring to each community. So like Allison was saying, what are some mistakes when you're starting out? How do you handle when something like that happens? I think one of the biggest mistakes small businesses make is they don't, they don't, they never think about financing their business with debt. Interesting. And every large business thinks about financing their business with debt. They're like, we're not using our shareholder money. We're using the bank's money or we're using some lender's money to, to finance our growth or go against the challenges that may be inherent in our community. So when you're using your own resources, you have to be more restricted. You have to spend less time on a plan. But when you're working on work with other people's resources, they're helping you with your plan, right? They're helping identify challenges and loopholes that could stop you from being successful, right? Because I mean, obviously that lender is lending to multiple businesses that do the same thing. They're sharing their experience with you to help perfect your plan. Oh, that's so like partnering with a bank and taking out a loan Seems risky, but there's a value add to it because the bank is helping you figure out what to do with that loan most effectively. Yeah, the bank or the lender, they don't want to lose money. I, I, you know, I don't want to lose money. I like doing loans. I, I love, I love helping businesses. I love helping developers. Um, you know, doing affordable housing development. But if they lose money, I lose money. I, I want to share, like, hey man, this is what so and so did in Cleveland. Why don't you do that? <laughs> like it works. So there's there's some value to that relationship. And I always encourage small businesses, even if you don't ultimately borrow the money, go through the process. There's value in the process. And how has like the small business landscape changed now that there's so much e-commerce and you can start a small business where you're not just relying on your, you know, neighbors and community, but selling either internationally or just throughout the country? How has that like kind of changed people's approach and what we need to know about? You know, I I'm, I love e-commerce. You know, I would be the first to admit I buy some from Amazon once a month Yeah. <laughs> But I'm buying from Amazon. I'm not buying from a supplier. Like when people bought from Sears, they were buying from Sears. When you bought from Target, you're buying from Target. The problem is, is they decide who they're going to sell. So at a certain point, you know, I, I want to stress to all small businesses, there's a limitation to thinking that when you're in a channel like an Amazon or retail store like Sears or Target, that they will forever be your channel. You have to build your own brand. You have to do, you know, in-market promotions and activities to make people know about your brand. And then you have to build a customer loyalty that goes beyond the e-commerce platform. There are like a trillion websites now. If I, mm-hmm. if I, put, in, if I put in my search engine right now, cool baseball hat, I'm going to get 10 million different leads. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to put in cool baseball hats by small business that I know. And then I'm going to get their <laughs> website and lookalikes <laughs> of their product. But at, exactly. at, at some point, because of search engine optimization, it's better to build a brand and a trusted process. And, you know, same thing that small business has always done when they were community-based, but you just have a wider market, but you never get away from branding. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm thinking of certain clothing brands that have been like, 
huge online, you know, for let's say like specifically the queer community, but then they open up a brick and mortar store and I'm always sort of like, why? (laughs) Well, I mean, let's talk about that. You know, it's funny because if I was opening up a store, particularly for the queer community, I'm not opening up that store to do retail. I'm validating the experience for my community to let them know that I do have retail. So if I'm in Seattle and I want to buy something from a company that's in Cleveland, I get excited because they have a store. I don't really get excited knowing that they may be in their garage at their home and they're just doing good and I really like them. The store has value. So the store becomes part of the brand building, the marketing process. So can you imagine, you're like, you know, I'm queer, but it's cool because I, I buy from a store. Like they're a boutique, like they're in Cleveland. I've never been there, but I see pictures. It's nice. They probably get no retail all day. They don't care. They're like, they're shipping <laughs> from the back of that store. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm a rube. Now, yeah. That's how it works. I mean, th- there's some value and energy in retail, even if it doesn't serve the traditional purpose that we get accustomed to. Because we're in this online environment, we still want to see the product. And, and if we know they have one store, like it could be one store in a mall. Like I I saw Rihanna's uh, Fenty brand in a mall in Atlanta. And I was like, she got a store? <laughs> so, I mean, like think about how valuable, like she's been doing a billion dollars online and she's like, ah, open up a store. <laughs> yeah. Because I think probably if you're even a loyal customer online to a brand like that, the first time you see a retail store, you're like, oh, I should check this out. I can see the different products in my hand. I can mm-hmm. figure out what I want to buy next time. I can, mm-hmm. you know, you, you post a photo of you in the store. Yeah, it builds it builds the presence of it. So there's an online brand that I support and they literally say, tag us in your shirt. I'm like, oh. mm-hmm. And no, like, why am I giving them free marketing? <laughs> but that's the value of having this, this new e-commerce network. It's, it's amazing. And I'd love to kind of dive into the generational wealth of it all, because I think that that's such a, a deep divide in the country between, you know, white people and people of color in that, like, they, you know, the starting place is so different. And so I feel like you can see all of these white people whose parents will invest in their store or their idea or their whatever, and they have the benefit of like a generational wealth investment versus I'm probably some people you work up, work with don't have that. And so what, how does that change things? You know, when you're risking everything for this business, you don't have a safety net. So I get excited when I think about the challenges of small businesses. You know, except for those that are cisgender male. I mean, I don't, I don't think they have a lot of challenges. <laughs> so when it, when it comes to, you know, being a person of color, being a woman, being LGBTQ, being disabled, when you approach um, family members, they have alternatives in their mind because of disparate impact treatment. They think you should be doing something else. Like, don't, mm-hmm. don't open up a retail store. You're, you're probably not going to do as well, right? And they are protecting you based on their known biases that they may have or the known biases in the community that they have, right? So part of that is from a place of love, but it's also not affirming. So Mm -hmm. I think it's important that when you talk about wealth building, you're talking about wealth building for a class of people who've been disadvantaged, you know, primarily because of perception. 
So we have a program at List where not only are we looking to invest differently, we're trying to take the stigma away from what does it mean if you're differently able, because you're not disabled, you're just differently able from a cisgender male. And then, you know, how do we have impact, right? We have impact by saying, you know, we require those males to do 80 to 90% loan to value. Why don't we give you an opportunity to do 99, maybe 95? You know, you put down a little bit less because society is expecting you not to have as much wealth. But what I see with a lot of entrepreneurs, regardless of, you know, ethnicity or orientation, is that they're paying a lot in rent. <laughs> like, you know, we were talking mm-hmm. about this great store, and I put them in Seattle, by the way, but they're paying like $5,000 a month. They can buy a property for probably a million dollars and save money just over time, having the stability of one location, one infrastructure, being able to attract employees to a certain place. And if I change my down payment requirements, I am right-sizing for the um, disparate impact treatment that's going on overall in our community. So at least we, we look at those challenges We look at wealth building as a key pillar to why we want to support small businesses. And we do it because we want to support small businesses that they don't have an equal playing field. Like we're not, you know, you could be African-American and you could be from a wealthy family, still not be able to get a loan. You could be queer and you'd be from a wealthy family and still not be able to get a loan. You can be a cisgender male and you could be from a rural family. You can't get a loan because you're kind of in a class that is mm-hmm. not the same as the suburban class in the urban community. So it's we look at all that and we make our investments decisions based on loan to value, how much down payment you need to put, credit score, based on areas in our society that hold people back from building wealth. And because we're so deliberate about it, we attract a lot of great organizations that want to invest because they're like, why are you talking out loud about that? I'm like, because it's a problem. You can't solve it if you don't talk out loud about it. So you sort of are the hub that is like making these investment decisions, but then you have other backers who are who are like kind of like who are who are financing, financing you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like it's, there's some great foundations in America who want to invest in this work. Right. And it's it's. You know, foundations are a whole bunch of mission based people looking to make some real difference in the world. And then what ends up happening is they run into a lot of organizations. They say, well, we really want to do this. And it's like, well, we don't think we can do that. You know, because even the organizations may have some limitations. But with LIST being one of the largest community development financial institutions in the country, we say, oh, no, we can do it. (laughs) It's going to take us a while, but we can do it. (laughs) (laughs) And we can't do it alone, right? So a lot of times when we take on new initiatives at LIST, we're looking for partners who can do the work collectively with us because mm-hmm. nobody can solve the challenges that have been put before us without collaboration. And we're big on collaboration at LIST. And I imagine like when you're starting a business at this point, sure, every once in a while, it's like this has never been done before, but a lot of ideas have been done before. And it's just your version of that idea, your version of the bakery, your version of this t-shirt, you know? And so like, if you're someone who has interest in launching a business, but feels like, why would my product even be needed? Like, how do you kind of work through that? And how do you even identify if if a product is needed or is going to have a clientele base? Oh, I, I love that question. So I'm, I'm going to tell you something I did that's stupid. So, you know, this is a, 
uh, this is called true confessions. Is this a true confession? Oh no, it's just between us. Okay, I, I just had to make sure. But I, I turned down this online yellow pages model because I said, why would somebody use that? It's the same as the yellow pages. And this was when I this is prior to coming to list, but the organization was called Groupon. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So you always say hindsight is twenty twenty. Every industry is basically the same, but sometimes there's some catalytic nature to how a new entrepreneur will do the business differently and take the business to different heights. And I would tell every entrepreneur out there is don't be discouraged by the um, naysayers, because if you're an entrepreneur, you hear no more times of disencouragement from a lot of people. But if, if you think you have a product that's catalytic and you have people willing to invest, you want to invest your own capital, I would go for it. You know, I always tell people failure is part of the process. If you fail, so what? Maybe you'll get back up and you'll try again. I don't know. Maybe you'll figure out what the people didn't like. Like, not cheering this particular entrepreneur on, but Elon Musk did a uh, rocket launch that blew up yesterday. And they were like, oh, that's great. I was like, okay, you just blew up like a billion dollar rocket and you're like, celebrate. <laughs> oh my God. So maybe there's some value in failure that we all need to learn to appreciate a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. And it and I think especially if you're not even, you know, getting that support from your loved ones, it can feel like, am I just delusional, you know, but yeah. but every successful business started with someone who probably felt a little delusional. Or especially if you're coming from like a background where you nobody in your life has ever started a business or mm -hmm. you don't like you're sort of like, well, there's imposter syndrome. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. What if I'm what if. I'm just doing it wrong and now I'm going to fuck up my credit forever. Uh, you went there. So I, I mean, I guess I can go there too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's, what's interesting is um, when you're different, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks you're going to fail because you're different. Mm -hmm. And you have imposter syndrome primarily because you've been reminded several times that you're different and what you want to do is so different. It's never going to work. And then, you know, sometimes that response is coming from loved ones, it's coming from parents, it's coming from people who saying, don't put yourself out there because we don't want you to have heart rejection. And they're worried about you mentally, socially, and a number of different things. I don't want you to discount that. So if you're an entrepreneur, you're listening to this, don't discount that. But also remember that if you taking some time to research what you're doing, if you're educated in the space that you're in, like if, let's say we use a bakery example. If you know you can bake, bake. And I don't care if you're the only African-American business in San Francisco, <laughs> do it. I don't care if you're the only queer business in Tallahassee, Florida, <laughs> do it. Mm -hmm. Ron DeSantis is not going to buy from you, but somebody will. So it's important that you... If you have taken the steps to make sure that you're good at something, maybe you won an award in a competition. Maybe you've been recognized by some other chef to say, hey, you should follow your dream. But don't not follow your dream. The worst thing in the world is not people telling you no why you're trying to build. It's you regretting what you didn't do when you get later in life and realize that the opportunities you had are now behind you. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. Something I wonder about with small business is that we're kind of taught, at least, you know, having worked for bigger companies that like the, you know, 
your employers are not your friends. Work is work. Nobody cares about you. Like you shouldn't care about them that much. But I imagine that like if you're working at a small business and you're one of like four employees, it's got to like feel different to you. You know, like it feels like maybe you don't have an actual stake in it, your salary, but like it feels like you're invested in this thing too. And so is that a smart mindset to have? Or even when it's a small business, it's important to be like, this is my work. These are not my friends. People don't understand. You can have what's called a lifestyle job. You can work for a small business. You can be extremely educated and be a barista. Yeah. Because you know what? Maybe you want to be a barista. (laughs) Maybe you want to write books in the evening. Maybe you want to just ride your bike and just stay healthy. Maybe you don't want to die from a coronary bypass that didn't go well. So I think people forget that work does not equal success. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, work equals lifestyle that's fueled by money, but it's not lifestyle that's fueled by happiness. People can find happiness in a lot of different ways. And I say when you're part of a small business, sometimes you're signing up for a lifestyle business. I know plenty of bakeries that say, I got this lady, she works 10 hours a week and she's so happy. This is time away from her kids. I got this guy. He works at night because he don't want to go home at this first job. <laughs> so, and I go, I like every night. Like he's in here every night. They're like, sometimes he's drinking on the weekend. They go, I don't mind. He's cleaning up the place. I go, okay, great. And you know, people need that in lives, right? Not because it's the best opportunity ever, but it may, it may provide them the lifestyle that they want to have. So I don't, I don't discourage the workforce from deciding what type of lifestyle they want to have. We all, we all don't need to drive million dollar cars and live in $10 million homes. Like some of us just want to be happy and we don't want to have to chase what society says is success all the time. Yeah. And like, it's interesting, like how, how have you felt about the sort of no one wants to work anymore, putting out signs being like, we're, nobody's working for, you know, this small, I don't know, like all the, all the sort of stuff that started happening with like, I'm a small business. I can't afford to pay people or whatever. I'm 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 going to say, I think a lot of things happen during COVID, post COVID, where we kind of broke the public trust and Mm. the workforce said, this is all I'm getting out of it. I'm, I'm just going to stay home. I can, I can do bad by myself. And a lot of that is primarily based on the fact that even for the people who really wanted to work and really needed to work, that the employers, you know, small and large, didn't value some of the lifestyle benefits that could be achieved by just, you know, just listening and saying, you know, I'm going to share my profits with my employees. Like when I, when I see profit sharing programs or I see when I see organizations that, you know, do ESOPs, employee uh, stock ownership programs, people are happy to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when people have benefits, they may be happier to work, especially people with families. Right. So I think it's it's too important of a need to discount the value for what's going on with people and where they are in their time of life. But if you want people to be reacclimated to the workforce, give them incentives. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in Paris right now, they're striking because they're like, you want to do what? You want to push men? You want to push retirement from sixty two to sixty five? I mean, they're protesting in the streets, and I'm like. I, I don't want to stop working at 62, but I'm an American, so I don't know no better. They're like, we're retiring at 62 and we're going to enjoy the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And that's lifestyle. And I, and I never discourage, you know, the workforce or the entrepreneurs to, you know, try to find an agreement between the two. 
Mm-hmm. Well, now I feel ready to launch my small business. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Allison's <laughs> going to do one. Well, maybe. I don't want to reveal. I'm thinking about it, but it's scary. Tell but it's for advice before you do it, right? You get that technical assistance I was telling you about. <laughs> right. Yes. That's the part that's scary. <laughs> Even just like, how do I build a nice website feels overwhelming. You can do it. Thank you. You can do it. <laughs> I also wanted to ask, like, if if people are looking to support small businesses or find small businesses or even, you know, I think there was a lot of we want to buy from black owned. We want to buy from LGBTQ owned. Um, how, what's the advice for someone trying to do that? Oh, man. Now you got me excited again. Quit getting me fired up during this interview. And I haven't cursed yet. So you you did it, but I didn't. OK, <laughs> next interview. So when you want to buy from Black-owned businesses, LGBTQ-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, there are three organizations I always ask people to, to at least look at their membership first and you know try to identify what they do. And this is on a national level. Um, one of them is National Minority Supply Diversity Council. So they do African-American, Latino, women-owned, and LGBTQ. And there is the um, National Gay Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. Phenomenal job making sure that they reach out. Um, they're a national organization, but they have a lot of local affiliates. The NMSCC does too, but I think the NGLCC does a greater job because they are trying to make sure that LGBTQIA has a you know place where they can go where you're not discriminating them, but over a cake. I almost said, damn, see, I said, I said it as an yeah. but <laughs> and, and you're not um, discriminated against. And then WeBank, so WBNC, um, Women's Business Entrepreneur. I always mess up their name. So Pam, if you're hearing this, please forgive me. That's the CEO of uh, WeBank. <laughs> but it's um, those three organizations work really, really hard to connect entrepreneurs to vendors who reflect their values that are part of their community to make sure that there's an opportunity for them to connect. Now, obviously, there are a lot of subgroups in every particular community, some of my local, some of my regional, and they all do a great job. But those, I'm, I'm in a national roller list. So those are the three I tend to work with the most, but they are really, really great organizations for getting out, you know, who you should buy from and do they reflect your values? That's wonderful. Oh, well, thank you so much. And now it's the portion where we make you play a game. Let's do it. <laughs> you seemed excited. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> this is my, this could be one of my small businesses is I want to just go around to parties and play this game. I think you should. Why not? They hire, <laughs> they hire magicians. They hire magicians. You get hired at a trivia night to, trivia to run night. a trivia. Interesting. Yeah, you could do it. <laughs> Anything could work. So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabe are going to be my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation, and I pick a winner. Sometimes I change my mind. I, I'm easily swayed I'm by easily arguments. swayed. Yeah. yeah. You can make your <laughs> argument. You can make your case. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> the first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of 52 years confesses that every leap year on February 29th, a portal to another universe opens up near a river and they go there for the day in order to have a bunch of sex with what are called beings in the other oh dimension. Stop. They look like humans, but have three arms. 
they thought it was okay because it wasn't with other human beings. No. It was with beings. Would you stay with this cheater? They tell me this after 52 years. Yeah, so every four years they have a day with the beings. But why didn't they invite me? They, you know, everyone likes to have something just for them. But it's a portal to another universe. Is this really on 420 or are they doing this on just, you know, 229? Exactly. Is it real? Is it real? (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is, in fact, real. And they haven't told anyone about the portal because, you know, they've read enough science fiction to know that things could get really messed up if too many people know about the portal. Oh, my God. I'm going to go. I'm going to leave. Really? Yeah, because I'm left out. They didn't trust me enough to tell me about the portal. What even is our relationship if you're not going to share? Like, if I found a portal, I'd say to my boyfriend, like, oh, my God, come check out this portal. And I hate being left out. Yeah, me too. I would be happy that they left me out. I don't want to go to the portal. You don't? No, the portal with the three arms, it would freak me out and I would run and I just, (laughs) I couldn't do it. So it's the three arms. I'd be like, you good. Three arm day. You got it. (laughs) You would just be like, okay, fine. Yeah. Three arms? You're hung up on that you don't like these beings. I think I would leave like what you said, Gabe, because I'm not knowing about the portal more so than the cheating. Isn't that so rude? Yeah, because I love I would love to know about a portal. Yeah. I'd be very interested. I, I would be interested in the portal, but I don't know if I, I'm not interested in the arm. So the, I'm down for the portal, <laughs> not down for the arm. <laughs> That's so funny. That's like so not a big deal to have another arm. I know, but I think he's just I think. <laughs> You're just like, look, I've lived this long of my life knowing what the world is. I don't need another world. I'm good. I'll be down for three eyes, but not three arms. <laughs> yeah, because I guess and like, are they aliens? Are they They're are from they... another that another universe? I'm so upset that I've for 52 years, I've been left out of this knowledge. I know. That's I'd so annoying. I'd leave, but I'd go to the portal. I would like the next leap year, you're going to see me there. And we haven't talked in years. <laughs> oh, my God. Four <laughs> years later, you are at the portal. You've lived there for four years. You just straight up moved. No, I would. I would just go for the day. Oh, Unless really? I like it. Well, no, because I have family and people I love. So I don't want to leave this universe. But I'd like to go once every four years to the portal. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> this is giving Narnia. <laughs> okay. It's giving Narnia vibes. Our second scenario Is this a date? Okay, Allison. Okay. What is it? The year is 1976. You are at a record store and start talking to the manager about the album Night Moves by Bob Seger. I love that album. You aren't sure if you should buy it or not because you are worried you don't like Bob Seger enough for a whole album. The manager offers to let you listen to the album on his personal record player in his office or their office to help you decide how much you like Bob Seger. Is this a date? In the 70s, it definitely is. But now here's my question. Yeah. What race am I and what race is the person? (laughs) No, I never, I had never even heard of Bob Seger. I just sort of looked up popular albums in 1976. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they used to let you do that. They used to have like booths where they would let you like hear oh, the album. Well, this store didn't have that. So they like, he, in this scenario, you are you and they are, they're also white. And they're, they're the same race as me and they're the same race as Steve's is the same race as Steve? Yes. Okay, interesting. And they're the gender that I, that I like. 
but you like all genders. I know. So I'm just saying. Yes. Well, I mean, I'm trying to figure out if this is an undercover cop. Uh, so Why? Because it's the 70s. So, Gay, let me help you out. So I'm probably a child of the 70s, so I can answer this question. Every record store in the 70s had multiple listening stations. Some Thank of them you. were small studios. Some of them were in the office. And whether it was uh, whether it was vinyl or the real cassette, I can't even think of what it's called anymore. But they would always say, "Hey, come check this out." So as a kid, I used to common. worry. I used to worry about some of these guys potentially being pedophiles when they say, "Hey, come in the back and check this out." But if you yes. really like music, you would just go and you would want to listen to the song, yes. and then you find out. They were just music nerds like you. So you could just kind of, you know, you could spaz out over new, you know, it could be new Bob Seger. It could be new Billy Idol. It could be something, you know, it, it could be, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye. You'd be like, oh, this is great. Thank you, man. And like, then he'd go, you're going to buy it? So it was never a date. It was them trying to sell you something just like a telemarketer would do today. Wow. Yeah. You don't remember in the 90s that like um, Barnes and Noble or Borders, they would have those booths and you could go in and like listen to the song before you buy it? No, I've seen it in a movie. Oh, well, <laughs> they've had that for a long. They don't have it now, obviously. But OK, but for whatever reason, this store, you can only listen in the manager's office. But we don't think it's a date. We think it's no, just good. No, he thinks it's a sales tactic. A sales tactic. A sales tactic. Yeah, okay. I don't think it's a date. I think it's a sales tactic. Fair enough. But you do end up falling in love. Overnight moves. Yeah. And that's then you, romantic. And then at your wedding with the manager, that's all you play. Is night moves over and over yeah, again? Yeah, three different full versions of night moves. Oh <laughs> that may be, that could be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be true. I was going to say one time a friend of mine had a playlist on his computer that said work playlist. And I clicked it and it was just different versions of I Can't Make You Love Me by Bonnie Raitt, but just all different versions of it. And I was like, are you okay, bud? Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Did he have the Prince version? Yes, the Prince version. Yes, nice. they had. He wow. had every version, and it was called Work Playlist. And he said that he was hiding his sad playlist under Work Playlist. But I just, I just snooped and found it. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway. Okay, our final game. Would you forgive this liar? Your good friend is over for coffee, and after they leave, you notice there is a dent in your car and you know they had been parked behind you. You call and ask if they might have dinged your car, and they deny it. Oh God. A few months later, you were going on a vacation together, and they offered to pay your share of it. When you say no, that isn't necessary. They insist to the point where it comes out that they did ding your car and wanted to find a way to pay you back without confessing the truth because they were afraid you would be mad at them. <gasps> would you forgive this liar? Steve? Yes. What? Why? This is not a time for personal testimony, but that could happen to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so funny. Did you ever confess? This is not time for personal testimony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so funny. I Well, it's interesting because... Why wouldn't they just confess and then pay me at the time? Because they thought you would be so mad at them. But then also, like, I don't feel like me as a person would look that deeply into someone wanting to pay for a vacation. Like, I feel like if someone was like, I'll cover your half, I would be like, OK, <laughs> which honestly feels like they're going to try to murder me. But I would just be like, yeah, no problem. 
I think for me, it would be like, it would be two different elements. It would be like, am I someone, do I give off a vibe that I would be so mad at you? True. Because I, that makes me feel sad that you think of me that way. Right. Um, because I wouldn't be that mad. And then the second part would be, or was this person raised in a family that got so mad at them for everything? Oh my God, you're so sweet. And then I could understand that they had this like deep seated fear that had nothing to do with me. And then I'd forgive. Oh my God. I couldn't see you being mad. If I hit your car, you wouldn't I wouldn't be mad. really care. Yeah. But if I <laughs> but if I like forgot to send an email, you'd be mad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. But I would forgive you. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just mean like I well I feel like I mean, it's just so obvious that they did it. <laughs> right? Like <laughs> people are uncomfortable saying they did something that they know was wrong. So they will they're gonna try to make up for it in different ways. True, mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Especially guys. (laughs) (laughs) Every time John, my fiance, goes out of town, he comes back and something weird has happened. Like we're like the barn doors off the hinges. Last time he came back, he was like, Allison, why is our smoke alarm on the back deck? Oh, I was like, well, it was going. I didn't know what to do. I just put it outside. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm that way too, though. When my ex would leave, I would be like, I broke a lamp. Yeah. Just like, like, I, I don't know how to do this by ha- myself. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened. <laughs> this lamp is broken now. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and find out more about all the amazing work you're doing? Well, I'm so excited. Thank you both for today's interview. And if you want to connect with Liz or me personally, go to uh, LISC.org. All you have to do is put in my name and hopefully they don't take you to any of those boring articles on there and they give you an opportunity to connect to my profile and I'll be more than happy to respond. If you have a small business need and and really just looking for a partner either locally uh, that can help you, maybe one of my offices, one of our partners across the country, I'll be more than happy to engage. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. That's so helpful. Thank you. Stick around. After the break, we'll be talking all about anti-Semitism. Back to just between us. It's time for topics. X, 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 baby. 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 I stole yours. Yeah, you stole mine. It's a nice one. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked about this before a little bit, but I think obviously it's like an ongoing topic, unfortunately. And a listener asked to talk about it. Yes. um, A listener was saying that we touched on it, but would love like to have a dedicated topic around anti-Semitism, which I think is a is a great idea and also proves that I'm reading the emails. Yes. So what, why did the person want us to talk about it? I don't know. I mean, it, it is this interesting thing where like, I feel like I'm still having to come to terms with how prevalent it is. Right. Because like I grew up in an area that was like very Jewish and mm-hmm. I went to boarding school where it wasn't really very Jewish. And, but I, I don't know, just like growing up in the town that I was in, like it felt like something of, of the olden times. Yeah, You know, but then like realizing that it is still very much a thing. And then even just like being like slow to like the undercurrent of it around some stuff. Oh, yeah. And like, like, I think things like go over my head that like, yeah, or like, yeah, like I don't even realize that that's like what's underneath it. Mm -hmm. And it's all all hate of of different groups is 
interconnected. Like Correct. the more mm-hmm. that we like allow for anti-Semitism, the more that like blatant racism is given mm-hmm, mm-hmm. time and space. And like, it's all. And so I feel like it's important to, to speak to all of it because they, I feel like they feed off each other. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Florida. I've definitely had experiences there growing up that were more anti-Semitic. Like when I was younger, someone spray painted a swastika on our house. And then like, you know, that, which is kind of crazy. But I remember at the time being like, what? But, you know, also like my grandmother was very directly a Holocaust survivor, was in the camps. Like I was hyper aware of that. We knew about that. Also like people using terms like like Jude me down and stuff, like to say that they got a deal. Like that's like, I was aware of that. I also went to Gainesville for a journalism workshop when I was in high school because I wanted to go to school for journalism. And there was one at the University of Florida. And I don't know if I've ever talked about this. I was in a dorm and it was just a week long. And the girls in my dorm were calling me, this is a rough, this is a rough one. Uh, they were calling me piggy because Jews don't eat pork. Did they think that was like a cute thing to call you? Yeah, they thought it was like joke. And they, they thought were, they were your friend doing yes, that? uh-huh. Wow. And I didn't quite know how to, and then also they tried to get me to like convert to Christianity. That was a big part of it. The whole week I was trying to avoid getting baptized. But like, yeah, it was very, um, it was jarring. And my dad also always tells this story about how when he was at University of Florida, and not to say that Gainesville is whatever, but it is like, you know, North Florida, which is very Southern. He said that a guy in his dorm was like, was like, why don't you have horns? Yeah. Because he they thought Jews would have horns. I mean, I think that like something that feels different, you know, because like I'm white, like I absolutely benefit from white privilege, but I feel like having Jewish heritage, I feel a disconnect from other non-Jewish yeah, white people. Sure who aren't taking what's going on in the country right now very seriously. Correct. Like that, that, that they act like I'm, I'm overreacting about mm-hmm. like the right and like the rise of fascism and these like new horrible rules that are being enforced. And like, and I think that there is this sense that there is this like kind of disconnect where like this to me, it feels like we are in 1930s. Germany. Yes. And we're either like heading towards another Holocaust or we can work really hard to veer away from that. But I feel like when you say that to certain like, you know, non-Jewish white people, they're like, nah, it's that would never happen again. (laughs) Or like they just have a different perspective on it or something. They lack a perspective on it in a way. Well, my joke is always I'm like Jews have one foot out the door always like we're packed we're ready to go we're like holocaust is happening but you know what's interesting is that i think the one-to-one here has to do with trans people and like i think the the all the bans and all the stuff and all the laws and everything is like classic hitler playbook but it's being used towards trans people which as you were saying it's all interconnected so like it's going to come for everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like they're just doing it at first. Like this is the thing is that at the time, the Jews were the people that they could like do this stuff to. And everyone would just be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't like, you know. And so that that's how they got away with starting to implement stuff. Whereas now I feel like it's like trans people and they're like, we're going to implement all this stuff. 
And it's going to come back on all the minorities. It's going to come back on on the Jews too. It's going to come back on black, you know, like all there's the interconnectedness too of the intersectionality of like black trans people and Jewish trans people, whatever. But like all this stuff where it's like they're they're banning drag and it's like, yeah, what do you think this is the beginning of? Like, and I feel like other non-Jewish white people have a hard time taking that jump. Where yeah. they like, and I we're think it's probably there. because, Jews right, like there. we're already there. <laughs> we live in that space. I'm curious for you, Melissa, like does, you know, because America is such a anti-Black country. Like mm-hmm. there's so much racism. Mm-hmm. Like what does it feel like to 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 see more like campaigns against anti-Semitism? Does it, do you, is there a sense of like, yes, but the bigger issue or how does it feel? No, not like, yes, but it's yes and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a lot of different areas. In some areas, there were, like, no Jewish people at all. And then, like, I was in Pennsylvania. Most of the people I knew were Jewish. Mm -hmm. And I never understood anti-Semitism, especially when it's coming from people that are Christian, when your whole religion is built on a Jewish man. Right. (laughs) Like, it it makes zero sense to me. They won't even admit he wasn't blonde hair and blue eyed. Like, they won't even admit that. So they won't admit that that was modeled after a gay lover. Like <laughs> What? Yes. That whole thing was, I think Michelangelo or something was commissioned to like make a illustration of Jesus and he wasn't Christian at all. And so that illustration is his lover. That's oh my so God. Funny. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> wow. I mean, I I think also there there are black Jews. Yes. And like it's I think they feel extremely erased. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's like seeing like, well, Jews are white. It's like which Jews? Right. Not all Jewish people are white. And then it's just like none of it I understand. But I just think that, you know, we need to come together more and like bridge the gap to fight these other people because it's like at the end of the day if we all everybody that is oppressed comes together mm-hmm. there's more of us than there are of them yeah that's why they're so afraid yes yeah. there's so much history it's hard like there's so i think there's a lot of work done to pit minorities against each other mm-hmm. there's like a lot of history with with jews and black people in like these sort of ways i think that Like, I just, you know, there's like a lot of, I think, leftover stuff from, I would say, the Motown movement Mm -hmm. where a lot of black singers were sort of cut out of money by Jewish managers. Mm -hmm. And that like is sort of a thing that is like a little bit, it's like a resentment that like is, I, it like linger, like there's, there's all this history or like. Jews and Asians being pitted against each other as model minorities. You're both good at business. You're both good at math. Fight. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think there's all this stuff that is used to like create discord within. I mean, even reform Jews making fun of Chabad Jews and Chabad Jews being like, you're not Jewish enough. Like everyone is just does all this infighting. And then it's like, that's what they, that's exactly what they want. You think that, Okay, like you think that when they start coming for like Jewish people, they're going to be like, oh, and you're a Chabad. So we'll go to you first and we're going to leave the reform people alone. No, like or like, oh, you think that, you know, they're going to start 
rounding up like certain types of people or they're going to make all these laws against certain types of people and it's not going to affect you. Obviously, it will. I mean, that to me is like what's so scary about the the difference between federal and state law Mm -hmm. is like it could feel so detached, like what's going on in Florida. Yeah, because it's like, well, I live in California and California is safe. But then, like, it's like none of us are safe because if they get enough power, they're going to make these federal laws. Mm-hmm. Future President Ron DeSantis. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Even the fact that we have such different laws state to state provides this false sense of security. Yes. That I think is going to really come to bite us in the butt. Mm-hmm. It's also pop culturally, right? So they'll be like, well, there's so many trans people on TV. There's so much diversity on TV. It's, and it's not, like, though. <laughs> right. Well, people will say that. And it's like, yes, but famous Jewish people went to the death camps too. Like mm-hmm. they did not not take famous Jews. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like, oh, we're going to do all these trans bands, but we're going to we're going to let the winners of RuPaul's Drag Race not not be affected by them. It's like, no, that doesn't create any actual political power. You have to still like fight for all of this stuff, which is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's a, it's just an interesting instinct to have as a person to like be anti-Semitic and, yeah. you know, like, and I also think it's, I think people will make jokes or will say something flippantly and then be like, but I'm not really that. Yeah. Or like, that's not, you know. Then where is it coming where from? Where is it coming from? Why are you saying it? Right. Yeah. Like I, you know, had an experience where I was called something and then the person was like, I never said that or I, I don't remember saying that. It's like, but that was in your heart. Like mm-hmm. it would never yeah. even occur to me to say those things at my most wasted or angry or because it's not where my brain goes, you right, know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's an interesting. It component. does feel vintage though. I agree with you from the beginning where you're saying that like someone's, if someone's anti-Semitic, I'm like, wow, retro. <laughs> like I assume that like, ev- like I, you know, like I feel like other forms of racism, I'm like, feels so now and ever present and like in the room always but like with yeah with anti-semitism i'm like really still that well because i i don't know like i think and that in itself is the power of of white privilege right Right. that like it got to feel like it faded into the background even if it didn't really we got to like feel like it did and so Unlike many, other groups who never even had a moment i never even had a moment of peace right Mm -hmm. or it feels like it became more of a dog whistle, like, oh, the conspiracy about lizards in the middle of the earth. And then you dig a little deeper and it's like those lizards are Jews. Most most conspiracy theories are anti-Semitic. Right. Which you guys had to teach me. I didn't even know that. Yeah. So it faded into the background and then became like, no, we're just mad at the lizard people. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, who are those lizard people? OK, well, they're Jews. <laughs> You're like, ah, interesting. Wild. Anyway... What do we rate this episode? I rate it 100 out of 99 small businesses getting support. I will rate it 74 out of 52 changing your attachment style. Mm. I'll rate it 80 out of 40. Where's the love? Stop the hate. Where is the love? Thank you to Steve Hall for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. 
To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Dog.